Hey everybody, welcome to Come Follow Me Daily Dose. I'm Lindsay Hansen, and today is May 17th. Today we're going to continue in this week's Come Follow Me block, and we're actually going to switch over to the book of Mark. Now, the book of Matthew has the Savior going from the triumphal entry straight into the cleansing of the temple, but there's a detail in Mark and something that comes between that really helps us understand the cleansing of the temple and what happened there a little bit more. So let's jump over to the book of Mark chapter 11. In Mark chapter 11, we see the Savior's triumphal entry, just as we do in the other books. But it says that the Savior goes into Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. He sees everything that's happening in the temple. It says he looks round about upon all things. And then in the evening, he goes into Bethany with the twelve to stay with Martha at her house. So he goes in and he sees what's happening. He experiences that emotion. And then he walks away from the temple spends the night, sleeps on it a little bit, and then in the morning he leaves Martha's house. Now keep that in mind because that detail is going to be very important when we talk about the cleansing of the temple. But before we get to the cleansing of the temple, we get to the cursing of the fig tree. Now it's funny because I remember when I was a kid, like primary age kid, learning about this. And I remember them talking about the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. And I don't know what was said, but in my little kid mind, I pictured a super angry Jesus just storming through Jerusalem, like pointing at a tree and setting it on fire and then going into the temple and throwing things around. Like the fact that these stories were back to back in my mind created a much different picture of Jesus than what we actually see in the scriptures. And so don't get too caught up in the fact that these stories are next to each other because it's not a true picture of how the Savior was feeling or his emotions at the time. So let's start in Mark chapter 11, verse 13. It says, And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Now let's pause there really quick, because unless we get into the details of this story, it might seem a little rash, right? But it's important to note that it makes mention that this fig tree had lots of leaves and that the Savior approached it thinking that perhaps it might have some fruit on it. Now, it does make mention that the time of figs wasn't yet. So figs weren't necessarily quite in season yet, but this fig tree was loaded with leaves. And with a fig tree, leaves and the fruit generally go hand in hand. So if the tree had lots of leaves, it probably should have had at least some fruit on it as well. Now, Bruce R. McConkie explains that the fig tree was representing hypocrisy here. Keep in mind, since the Savior returned to Jerusalem or began kind of this ministry here in Jerusalem, he's been calling out hypocrisy quite a bit, the scribes and the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. And so here, according to Bruce R. McConkie, the tree was representing a hypocrisy, presenting this perfect image of a fig tree that was laden with fruit, yet not bringing forth fruit, not bringing forth anything that it was supposed to be doing. What a beautiful example of hypocrisy that was. But beyond that, I think it's so important to recognize what the Savior did here. We're so used to, in this ministry of his, seeing him give life or seeing him heal or using his powers and his miracles to do positive things. But here he causes death of this tree, essentially, with his word alone. 
as he's heading into this final week of his life, I think it was important for his disciples to see that power, not just the power to bring life, but the power to destroy it as well. Because when he allowed himself to be taken, when he allowed himself to be crucified on the cross with the power of his word at any point, he could have destroyed the crucifiers and he could have saved himself. And the miracle of the cursing of the fig tree stood as a testimony of his power to destroy as well as save. Now going into this final week, the disciples had a greater understanding that not only did the Savior have power to take up his life again, but it was in his power to lay it down completely, his own will, not the will of his captors. President Benson said it this way. He says, Christ said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man layeth down his life for his friends. Not only did he lay down his life before us, the perfect example for earthly living, but for our sakes, he willingly gave up his life. He went through an agony, both in body and spirit, of which we cannot comprehend, to bring us to the glorious blessing of the atonement and the resurrection. Some men are willing to die for their faith, but will not fully live for it. Christ both lived and died for us. So this cursing of the fig tree is a testimony that Christ truly did lay down his life, that it wasn't taken from him. So from there, from the cursing of the fig tree, he goes into the temple to cast out the money changers and them that sold in the temple. The question is, what was so wrong with this? Why was he so distraught about it? First of all, the money changers were frankly ripping people off. The people came to the temple. They needed to make an offering, but their money had graven images on it. They had these Roman rulers and they couldn't be used in the temple. So the money changers would change their Roman money with temple currency, but they would do so at a ridiculous price. They were taking advantage of people who wanted to come to the temple to worship and to offer what they could there. But think about those who were buying and selling, people who were selling lambs and oxen and birds to be sacrificed. What was so wrong with that? Sacrifice is a good thing, right? Well, keep in mind the Levites, the heirs to the priesthood. One of their core responsibilities was over the animals of the temple, to raise them up, to take care of them. And so here these merchants come into the temple and they take over that priesthood duty that didn't belong to them. It was a mockery of the priesthood and a mockery of the power that the Levites had and had been given to exercise that priesthood duty in the temple. Clearly, this was a problem, and it was a problem for the Savior as he saw his father's ordinances and commandments being changed and skewed for profit or for gain. However, keep in mind the timeline that we talked about here. I think sometimes I'm going to go off on a tangent, and it's going to make sense in my head. Hopefully, it makes sense for you. But I think sometimes we consider negative emotions to be wrong to be bad. Like we should never feel frustrated or we should never feel angry. We should never feel sad. My friends, that's simply not the case. We are humans. We are having human experiences and our father in heaven has given us the ability to feel all of these things. There is nothing inherently wrong about feeling frustrated. There's nothing inherently wrong about feeling angry. But what do we do with that frustration? What do we do with that anger? Now let's get back to this timeline. Last night, the Savior rides into Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. He sees the money changers. He sees the merchants. And I am sure in that moment, he is feeling frustrated, maybe even angry. But does he throw them out then? No. 
He goes back to Martha's house. He takes the night and then he returns so that any of his action wasn't done in anger. It was done in a controlled way. That is the difference between our anger and how we respond to it sometimes, our temper tantrums, and what the Savior did here. What he did here was purposeful and it was necessary, but it was not done in a way that was out of control. The anger was not controlling the Savior at this point. He was in control. And I think that that's so important to understand because I think sometimes we feel guilty for our human emotions or guilty for anger or frustration when anger and frustration are just part of this life. What matters is how we respond to it and what we do with it. President Hinckley once said, anger is not an expression of strength. It is an indication of one's inability to control his thoughts, words, his emotions. Of course, it is easy to get angry. When the weakness of anger takes over, the strength of reason leaves. Cultivate within yourselves the mighty power of self-discipline. Notice, President Hinckley didn't say cultivate within yourselves the ability to not get angry. He just says we can't let the weakness of anger take over so that our strength of reason leaves. When we have that experience where anger comes or frustration comes, we can follow the Savior's example by taking a step back from whatever it is that's making us feel angry or frustrated. Taking that step back, evaluating the situation, taking control of our own emotions, and then responding. That is the Christ-like way of dealing with negative emotions. That is self-control. That is self-discipline. The Savior taught it through his example, and we can live it as we use his atonement to become more like him. Thank you so much for listening today. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure to follow us on social media, subscribe, like, comment, or share. This has been Come Follow Me, Daily Dose, and I'm Lindsay Hansen. 